Emmanuel Macron re-elected president of France. Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. It's Sunday the 1st of May 2022 and joining me as always from the other side of the globe is my co-host Churn. Hello Churn, happy Labour Day. How's everything going? Well, good, thank you. It's an extra long Labour Day here in Singapore because we've got Monday and Tuesday off. So I've hopped myself to the beach, got a really bad suntan shoulders. But nonetheless, <laughs> this is an important part of our daily, of our weekly routine. I'm back here to record another podcast. How about yourself? Yes, I'm doing all right. Sadly, I did not have the same beach getaway as you this weekend, but still um, trying to find some time to enjoy the bank holiday weekend as well. Well, comrade, we've got a lot of things to look forward to this week. So where shall we begin? Yes, so I mean, today we'll be covering the parliamentary elections in Slovenia and also finishing our discussion of the presidential election in France, where, as we know, just this weekend, just last weekend, Emmanuel Macron was successfully re-elected as French president. But before we get into those discussions, Chern, we're recording today on Sunday on to the day, the 25th anniversary of Tony Blair's astonishing 1997 Labour election victory, where he became Prime Minister and saw the start of 13 years of Labour rule in the UK. And it saw a record result for the Labour Party, winning a landslide victory of 418 seats out of 659. And it ended an 18-year successive rule of the Conservative Party, Um, ousting outgoing Prime Minister John Major. So we thought in the spirit of landslide victories that we'd both come up with some landslide victories ourselves where we think people will look back and think, I cannot believe that result happened. So Churn, kick us off. What did you bring to the table? So I think there's two ways in which I approach this question. Firstly, it is the un... How unlikely is this landslide victory to occur? Mainly because of the state's demographics or its makeup that makes one party's dominant victory particularly surprising. And secondly, I think this is very much with the hindsight of history looking back, is with such parliamentary numbers, what did the party in power decide to do? So let me just answer both those questions first. I think for the first question, based on the state's demographic, what was such an unlikely landslide victory? I cannot turn to an election that we actually cover in this podcast, which is the 2021 Western Australian state election that took place last year, in which Premier Labour Premier Mark McGowan won 53 out of the 59 seats in the Western Australian Legislative Assembly and, crucially as well, achieved the majority in the upper house, despite it being stacked and against uh, his Labour Party and weighted more in favour in rural areas as well. It meant that in two elections, one in four Western Australians changed their vote from the Liberal Party to the Labour Party. And I just thought it was an astounding victory in in this resource-rich state. And we know that centre-left social democratic parties tend to do more poorly in resource-rich states. In fact, in federal elections, for example, the Labour Party only has five out of the 15 seats there. But yet at the state government level, it is an absolute dominant victory that will cement Mark McGowan's continuing run of five years in uh, of five years so far as Labour Premier. So he did this with 
uh, 60% of the primary vote, which is unheard of um, in, in a modern world for any party to get over 50% and 70% of the two party preferred. And the Liberal Party was not relegated to third place with its leader losing its seat. So I think all those factors makes that first criteria particularly interesting to me. If we look at the second criteria in terms of the policy changes that one has been able to bring about, because often with landslide victories, the irony is that despite winning a big mandate, you are conscious of the fact that you have a lot of MPs representing areas that don't naturally vote for the party and are therefore more con uh, cautious in policy terms. So I therefore would like to bring up both on in the UK two elections. So we had the 1945 UK general election where Clement Attlee came to power and really changed the makeup of modern Britain that survives to this day, you know, joining NATO, for example, establishing the National Health Service, for example. You know, these are facets that even conservative governments to this day still increase spending or vermintly defend really in this day and age. So I think that's a mark of using a landslide victory for a large success as well. And I think the same criteria could be applied to the 1983 general election where Margaret Thatcher won her second election victory. It brought in a wave of privatizations into Britain and that has largely been accepted even by the modern UK Labour Party itself. And it really was really foretelling that it brought the Labour Party from one which was very much anchored then in the left wing to then where it was in 1997, where it very much shed its militant tendencies, its, uh, its nuclear disarmament campaign was shared as well. And it brought the Labour Party very much closer to the centre in order to win those votes. And I think based on that criteria, that election could also be considered uh, consequential as well. I think both of those are, are, well, all three of those are great answers to the question. And in fact, when I was thinking of my response, I wanted to pick one that we discussed on the podcast and the Western Australia one was the first one I went to as well, but you so eloquently summed it up there. But the other two I went for actually were not in the life cycle of this podcast, nor were in the life cycle of my personal life as well. But they are at a similar time as the one of the last elections you just spoke about, the 1983 UK election. And there are two elections that took place in 1984, one in the US and one north of the border in Canada as well, because I think both of those set very, like, if, if you look back in terms of a 2022 lens, just look astonishing given what's gone on in the country since. I mean, the 1984 US presidential election in particular, because... Reagan won 525 electoral college votes and his opponent Walter Mondale who had on his ticket Geraldine Ferraro the first female nominee on a major ticket only carried his home state of Minnesota and Washington DC which if we look back in the current lens for any party to pretty much sweep the board in the United States presidential election is absolutely astonishing and I think no, no one has come anywhere close since that, and I really doubt that anyone will come anywhere close in the near future again, just because of how polarised American politics has become since then. And quite often we look back, Reagan was immensely popular, especially in his first term, but if we look back even then, we look at a divided US society. So to even think of a world in which it was possible for one single party to win a majority of the vote in 49 US states, 
I just think is absolutely astonishing. And something similar happened north of the border in the same year as well, because in 1984 in Canada, Brian Mulroney led his Conservative Party to a victory of 211 seats out of 282 which defeated the incumbent Liberal Prime Minister John Turner and ended a run of nearly 21 years of Liberal government, bar one year in the middle. And it was also the last time that any party won a plurality of the vote in every single province in Canada and completely destroyed the Liberals' run of results in Quebec, which had prior to this been an absolute bedrock and fountain of Liberal support. And it wasn't until 2015, since that 1984 election, that the Liberal Party even won a majority of Quebec seats ever again. So it really did disrupt the flow of Canadian politics. I mean, in the context of this election, Brian Mulroney had created a grand coalition of Conservative factions from across the country. So it's no surprise that the party at that time had the potential to have that reach. But I still think it's astonishing that level of, of majority that was achieved with 211 of, 211 of 282. And it's even more remarkable that both of these elections took place in the same part of the world in the same year as well. So those are the two I went for. I think those are really good examples. I mean, to me, what I find fascinating is that with Margaret Thatcher's 1983, this was really a high watermark of centre-right politics. You had Brian Mulroney winning landslide victory in 84, Reagan in 1984, you know, Helmut Coyle was still in power in Germany as well, uh, and uh, Margaret Thatcher was in the UK. Make France or Mitterrand, I'm sure as this summer, feel quite left out, one would suspect. I think the other thing that I would like to point out about these two elections, not only was it consequential in the fact that NAFTA was really conceived during this period, and I don't think it would have occurred if not for pro-free trade presidents north and south of the 49 parallel. But both these elections were characterized by notable debate performances and one-liners that have reverberated within these countries for many years to come. So in 1984 in the US, um, this is after there were, after in the second debate, after there were concerns about Ronald Reagan being at that time, 73 years of age, being having the mental capacity to endure the grueling demands of the presidency. I'm sure, Sam, you'll be able to remember that famous remark that he said in the second debate that in a response to a question from a journalist, Reagan said that he would not make age an issue of this campaign. I would not, I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. And I think it's been one of the few debate performances that has still resonated throughout time and effectively neutralized through humor that issue itself. And secondly, a lot of what fueled that rise of Brian Mulroney to the president, to the prime ministership of Canada, in such a way that Brian Mulroney was not even in parliament at the last election in 1980. So he's had a phenomenal rise to the premiership in 1984, was after he demanded that John Turner apologize for a series of scandals where essentially jolts were given to mates of the Liberal Premier at that time, and the Liberals at that time were coming out after a particularly long period of rule. He said, he famously responded by saying that um, uh, Turner uh, basically uh, saying that he had no, uh, no, no choice really. Maruni responded by saying, you had an option, sir. You could have said, I'm not going to do this, this is wrong for Canada, and I'm not going to ask Canada to, Canadians to pay the price. 
you had an option, sir, to say no, and you chose to say yes to the old attitudes and old stories of the Liberal Party. That, sir, if I may say respectively, is not good enough for Canadians. And that is, I, you had no option, sir. It's still very much reverberating around and one of the camp debate performances that even to this day, in co debate compilations, people often point to that moment and a large reason why Marini won such a big victory. Yeah, I mean, that. thank you for adding some even more flesh and bones onto these. But I think this discussion has just proven that uh, the landslide elections taking place all over the world um, have, have some fantastic stories coming out of them. And as we look back to the 25th anniversary of Tony Blair's landslide, it almost seems even more astonishing that that was possible when we look at the state of UK politics today as well. So that is then, and this is now. And so, Sam, what are we going to be talking about this week? So, as I said at the top of the show, this week we'll be analysing two elections in East and Western Europe that took place on the same day last weekend. Shortly, we'll be looking at President Emmanuel Macron's successful re-election campaign, where he became the first French president to win a second term in 20 years. But first, there seems to have been quite a remarkable election result last weekend in Slovenia, hasn't there, Chern? Indeed, it has. And I think we should start, our all, as always, our discussions on election results by uh, giving you what actually happened. So the new, very likely the new prime minister of Slovenia will be Robert Golob, who led his freedom movement to a convincing victory of 41 seats in the 90-seat chamber with 34.5% of the vote, thereby only falling five seats short. The, the incumbent prime minister, Janis Jansa, of the Slovene his Slovenian Democratic Party got 27 seats, which is plus two, and a slightly lower 23.5% shared the vote. The new Slovenian Christian Democrats, led by Martic Tonin, got eight seats, which is up one, with 7% of the vote. The Social Democrats, led by Tanja Fajan, got seven seats, which is down three, and 6.7% of the vote, which is down 3%. And Levika, which is sort of a left-wing party, led by Luca Mesic, got five seats, which is half the number of seats that he got last time around, with 4.5% of the vote, 4.4% of the vote, which is down 4.9%. And I think a big feature of it, if you compare this election result to the last election in Slovenia, was that with a 4% threshold, the number of parties in this election that entered parliament fell from nine to five. So you actually have the actual amount this time around. So evidence, therefore, of a slight consolidation of parties as well. But Sam, I think a good place to start our discussion is we're talking about the party that came first. Because who is Robert Golov? And how did a party that was formed barely a year ago able to win such decisive mandate in the polls? Yeah, I mean, it's not just barely a year ago. In fact, this party was formed officially in 2022 in January. So it was actually le less than four months ago that this political party was officially formed. So Robert Golob is the former co-founder of a Slovenian state-owned energy trading company. So he comes from a business background, not necessarily a, a, a strong political background, although he has been involved in politics in Slovenia under numerous political parties in his time uh, um, at at more local and regional Slovenian politics. But nonetheless, that doesn't under undermine the fact that in this election, as you said, 
he won his party won 41 seats which is the largest number of seats won ever by a slovenian political party by quite a distance so falling just five seats short of an of an overall majority this is a phenomenal result in the history of slovenian politics since independence as well um in terms of where i think this victory came from i think that i read an article which was talking about the dubbing it the new party playbook that is followed in slovenian politics and also can be mapped in quite a few other um newly independent um eastern european states and in Slovenia, in both 2011 and 2014, new political parties won over a third of the vote. And in fact, 2018 saw a new political party helm the coalition government. So it's not unusual for political parties to emerge very quickly and to become very successful very quickly. And I think a lot of that comes from trying to form anti-corruption political parties. And that's what... Robert Gerlov built on this time because since Jansa became Prime Minister in 2020 there have been weekly protests at the illegitimate nature of his government or how it's deemed illegitimate because although he won the election in 2018 could not form a government at that time so when the existing government dismantled in early 2020 Slovenians thought they were going to go to the elections and were denied that opportunity seemingly and it led to weekly protests against Jansa's government and the democratic backsliding that was that was taking place allegedly at the time. In fact, over this period, um, Freedom House demoted um, Slovenia's um, democratic rating and in fact it was the steepest fall in democratic rating of all the countries monitored by Freedom House at the time as well. So all that put together, I think, made an environment in which a new political party formed barely this year was able to do so well so quickly. I think I largely, I think I agree with a lot of the things you say. I think just let me add a couple of things. I think one thing about the depth of the people's anger, particularly about a prime minister, an outgoing prime minister, Janis uh, Jansa, who has led Slovenia on and off for many years. He's a staple of part of the political furniture, can be seen in the turnout which has 69% is the highest turnout ever in Slovenia's history for over 20 years. Um, so I think it, it suggests to me it brought a lot of voters who potentially were very upset about the disillusion of the political process, but who previously had decided to protest at their unhappiness with the political system by not voting. This time around, they found a figure in Robert Gola who they could rally around. And therefore, he was able to come out remarkably five seats short of an overall majority in the parliament. So I think that's the first thing. And I think as well is that you talked about uh, uh, Janet Jansen's, of course, as many controversies in Slovenia. But I think what is what I think cemented his ultimate downfall was, ironically, how he's how what happened in the in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine itself. Now we covered an election a couple of weeks a month, weeks ago where we looked at Hungary and Serbia, all countries in a similar neck of the woods who have previously been uh, ruled by a by communist states, but who nonetheless elected strongmen who were very much were pro Putin and are continued to be not to not to be as anti who didn't shy who have not shied away with the same and moved away from their relatively neutral or pro-Russia positions as in other countries in Europe. But the 
key difference between what is observed in Hungary and Serbia and what is occurring here is that Viktor Orban and Vudic have been in power consecutively for many years. Janet Jens has only been in power since 2020, and he's previously been in power from 2012, 2013, and 2004, 2008. In other words, he's not had time to bed down and fundamentally reshape Slovenia's institution very much into his own image and SDS image. So very much when uh, the whole um, conflict with Ukraine erupted, he wasn't able to control the state institutions and therefore change the message potentially of how he could be portrayed in the media. And therefore, in Slovenia, as a country which is bordering Italy and so many other Western European countries, he really felt the brunt of that. And I think that ultimately sunk his bid for another term. Do you agree with that analysis, Sam? Oh, I, absolutely, I do. And I think it also, um, it also helps to explain why an anti-corruption party became so successful against Yannick Jansa specifically, because... The reason he left office in 2013, after just one year back in power, was over a corruption scandal involving the failure to declare assets and a misuse of government contracts as well. So using the anti-corruption argument against Yannick Jansa as a figure specifically worked very well because there was a track record to go on as well. So I think in addition to Yannick Jansa's inability to have fundamentally reshaped institutions in the way that Viktor Orban and Alexander Vukic have been able to do. He just also had that reputation of corruption that I think made an anti-corruption argument just land better. Whereas when you've had consecutive periods in power like the other two in Serbia and Hungary, those arguments don't land as well because they think, well, there has been corruption, but nothing that's ever damaged him irreparably. Whereas in this case, it, it, it did because he was removed from power in 2013. And it took another seven years for him to come back to the helm of Slovenian politics as well. And I don't think as well, uh, Jan Jens' behaviour as Robert Golub started to gather his political forces. I think just added fuel to the disillusionment which a lot of ordinary Slovenians felt. So, for example, um, Robert, when Robert Golov took over leadership of the of Freedom Movement, which was by then a small environmentalist party, he um, he was he soon lost his actual job actually after the state decided to restructure his company, and Freedom Movement itself was soon joined by a lot of executives who who had to quit because of Yannick uh, Jansen himself. So I think therefore they a lot of ordinary Slovenians have seen the playbook that. Uh, uh, Jansa run and probably got fed up because it's just the same old thing over and over again. So, and you know, and I think as well is that not only is it the past, but Robert Golov as well offered and was seen as a very charismatic figure who promised to do better things. And I think that promise of a new Slovenia, someone who has not been in politics so far, was really appealing as well. That element, I think, of a new appeal and not being tainted can be seen by the fact, I think, as the move for change running throughout the lecture can be seen. I think if you look at the parties that failed to make it into parliament, included lists led by former prime ministers Alenka Bratuse and Marjan Sarek, 
and who failed to make it back into parliament. And these are two lists which are named after the personalities itself, former prime ministers itself that were swept out of parliament. That suggested to me, a, they, many Slovenians wanted a big broom through the place and wanted somebody with new leadership, new ideas to come through. Yeah, I just, the only, the only asterisk I would add to that is I think a lot of the reason these parties either fell below the threshold or in the case of the um, Social Democrats and the left party as well lost seats, I think was because of the consolidation around the freedom movement rather than people abandoning those parties um, completely. I think it might have been a more tactical voting thing going on within Slovenia as well, but I do completely agree with you that I think the disillusionment extended way beyond Yannick Jansa as a figure. And in many ways it reminded me of I know we had to cover a few of these at the time, but the Bulgarian elections where there was the There Is Such a People party went from non-existence to nearly topping the polls within an incredibly short period of time. And yes, that did fade away as the Bulgarians continuously went to the polls, but that um, desire for anti-corruption um, figures and for political change with new parties didn't fade away. Um, and just manifested itself in different locations. But I think the sentiment was very similar. No, I mean, uh, or we continue the change, which let, which is currently leading Bulgaria, for example. It entered the November 2021 elections for the first time, and it automatically topped the polls. So it's exactly the same situation, actually. We saw it with their such a people part, they declined. But it's nonetheless, they are re it's a continuation of... Um, of these anti-corruption, new ways of doing things, really. But the challenge is, of course, I'm sure you agree, Sam, is that what is the likelihood of these parties surviving beyond and getting to the end of the term in government? Because I've got an amazing statistic, Sam, where we've had 13 governments in Slovenia. The last six have failed to serve a full term. And nine out of the 14 in total have not lasted the entire term. So frankly, getting to the end of a term is going to be step one, isn't it? Oh, it, it really is. And I mean, the, the, the difference here, I think, is that the freedom movement has such a large number of seats that it's only five seats short of a majority. So in, in theory, the chance of it falling because it fails to amass enough votes for major changes in the parliament should be smaller than before. However, because it's such a new party, because it was only formed in January, and because a lot of it seems to be a result of tactical voting from, yes, mostly the left of Slovenian politics, but not exclusively, and not the same kind of left-wing energy as, as each other. I think it's going to even have a difficulty holding its own party together, because beyond being an, uh, beyond being an anti-corruption party and having environmental tendencies because of the history of Robert Golob as an individual, I don't know if it necessarily has the ideological grip to be able to sustain itself through not just any period of government, but a period of government where there's intense domestic and international pressures from the Ukrainian invasion having to deal with that. And then as a result of that, the energy dependence of the country. And, and I mean, I saw someone comment it saying that because of Robert Golob's corporate experience in energy trading, he potentially has the the exact experience necessary to negotiate reductions in Russian gas dependence. But beyond that, 
I, I'm not sure if he if he has the ideological and institutional grip on his own political party to ensure that this government survives for a long time. And we've seen countless examples around the world of these anti-corruption parties emerge, govern for a short period of time and completely fall apart. And I wonder if the freedom movement will be another one of those. But the attitude for change amongst the general population in Slovenia does seem high enough that should this party be able to get itself together, that the will is there for people wanting it to succeed in its mission. And I wonder if that will be enough to sustain it, at least for one term. Well, I mean, as, as they say in the classics, time will tell. I mean, we just had to look at the 2014 elections, Positive Slovenia, which entered parliament in 2011, then completely fell by the wayside, for example, uh, during, that, during that term. It, uh, so, so there's a very recent example within Slovenia itself of such a thing happening. On the party issue itself, I think there could be scope for cooperation between the parties, um, given the sense that uh, freedom movement, for example, advocates environmentalism, the welfare state, for example, and open society, and is about to improve healthcare and pursue a transition to a greener economy. So it seems to be a lot of the agenda could be ones that the Social Democrats and Levika could sign up to. And we know that based on the arithmetic, that he only will need one to agree with. So I thoroughly agree with yeah, and I think there. I think I saw that the Social Democrats have already indicated that they'd be on board with getting in the government. Indeed, because right now, it's the chance to get rid of a populist right-wing figure in Janice Jansa. So, but this is the initial stage. I think governing in the short to medium term will set it out, will be that question really of how much can other social democrats willing to give and how much as this new party, new to politics itself, gets mm. itself into government and has to make hard decisions, particularly with the cost of living crisis, what it does next will be particularly key. Yeah, I don't do this very often, but there is a quote in Hamilton, which is, I think is perfect for this situation, where George Washington says, winning is easy, governing's harder. And I think that is going to be very true for Robert Golob in this instance as well. Well, Sam, if you didn't quote a Hamilton reference, and frankly, why am I talking to you still? <laughs> Finally, Sam, we just looked at two elections. We're going to talk about the next one in a minute. Do you, are you more surprised by this election result than the France one? I think so. I think so, because I think both, well, both of them are quite similar, in, as we'll come on to talk about, in the scale of the victory being higher than we expected. But in the Slovenia example, this is the highest seat count ever recorded in independent Slovenia, and the party came from nowhere within four months to win this party. So for me, I think that's more surprising than Emmanuel Macron winning re-election against the same opponent as last time. Um, but I'm sure in, in a moment we'll come to expand on that a bit further. But what about you, Chern? No, I totally agree. I think that this is actually the more pleasant surprise, to be honest. And I think, sadly for it, a lot of the coverage got lost in the French election that took place on exactly the same day. I think in the contours of Eastern Europe, it reveals the heterogeneity of the countries. We have some countries moving towards authoritarianism, very much democratic backsliding of Hungary and and uh, Serbia, but for those who believe in democracy, who believe in liberal, uh, in liberalism, we have still shoots of green shoots that we need to nurture in places like Slovenia, the Czech Republic as well. So I, I think to me, this is showing that this region, 
monotonous as it was coming out of the Soviet Union period, is now showing a range of political opinion that is becoming very fascinating indeed. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. We'll now be moving on to talk about the second round of the French presidential elections, which also took place last Sunday. And it saw Emmanuel Macron of En Marche win the election once again, winning re-election and becoming the first French president in 20 years to be re-elected. And he won 18.8 million votes, which was roughly 59%, to Marine Le Pen's 13.3 million votes, around 42%, 41.5%. And in doing so, it also is the third largest second round margin in French presidential election history with the first one being himself in 2017 and the second one being Jacques Chirac in 2002 which was also against someone with the surname Le Pen so there's history there as well. So Chern, straight into it, were you surprised by the eventual margin of victory and uh, how did it fare in terms of our predictions last week? Oh, Sam, trying to toot your own horn, isn't it? Um, To be honest, I thought that I said 55% because I thought that I knew that Le Pen had always underperformed the final opinion polls, but I thought that it got Le Pen's vote roughly correct in the first round. So I thought that it would be roughly the same this time around. But again, 55 to 60 is probably, I'm not, wasn't entirely surprised. I will say two things about expectations though. I think it's very dependent on what timescale we are, we're discussing this question on. Because if you ask me a year ago or just when war in Ukraine started, I think 58.5% is rather on the low side. However, if we were to base that compared to the last few weeks, particularly that few days before the first round, I think this is a very good result for Emmanuel Macron, given the fact that we were talking about the potential for Le Pen topping the first round or even it being a much closer, even 52, sort of 48 kind of figure that was speculated at one point. So I think we've seen Macron gain some momentum over the last couple of weeks, but nonetheless, I think that perspective of what time frame we're looking on should be considered. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, it wasn't just an attempt to toot my own horn, but I did suggest last week that I thought just under 60% was was in the right ballpark because I thought that eventually the consolidation around Macron or the decision of some Mélenchon supporters just not to vote at all would be enough to give a fairly comfortable victory to Emmanuel Macron. But I'm sure we're going to come to unpack where this came from throughout this second half of the podcast. But So was I surprised at the eventual victor, Emmanuel Macron? No. Was I surprised at the margin of victory? Not particularly, but it was on the higher end of things. Let's put it this way. I think the shock at this result is orders of magnitude less than the Slovenia result when I saw those results when they came when I when they came through. Let's put it and do you agree with that, Sam? Yeah, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. So let's talk to Marine about Marine Le Pen now, because I think a bit like 2017, although Le Pen did not bomb the debate which took place in between the first and second round, it was notable that Macron still gained in the opinion polls. This is, Marine Le Pen has run for the presidency for the third, this is a third attempt at the presidency. Is this result a good result for Marine Le Pen? 
And was this race actually winnable for her? Because at one point, she came awfully within striking distance of winning the presidency, didn't she, Sam? Yeah, she really did. And and as you said, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the possibility of her winning the first round and what that would mean for the second round. But that didn't come to pass. Nonetheless, I think there are some positives for Marine Le Pen to take away from this election. One is that I think she has completely transformed political debate in France because things like immigration and Islam have become so normalised that they're mainstream debate topics that have to be addressed by every major contender in French elections. And that was just not the case um, 10 years ago. So she has transformed in that respect. She's also managed to make the runoff twice. And in the two consecutive runoffs, she has increased her vote share to now over 40%. And I mean, it's still the third largest second round margin in French history, but it's a far cry from the 2002 result achieved by her father. And I mean, for a party like the National Rally, as it's now known, to make the second round twice in the context of a quite well-established political system where there are some major parties competing, although we did talk about last week about how poor their performance has been recently. But nevertheless, I think for a, for, a, for what was formerly a fringe party to make two consecutive election runoffs is an achievement. And, and, and that's not even talking about the fact that she was able to push government policy in certain directions because Emmanuel Macron over his first term had to adopt much harsher security policies to crack down and track religious extremists. And throughout the campaign, both Valérie Pécresse and Emmanuel Macron had been accused of parroting some of the far-right talking points on refugees and Islam as well. So all that put together, I think, even though Marine Le Pen did not win this election and actually was far from it, the impact she had on French political discourse and the behaviour of other parties, and I expect the behaviour of Emmanuel Macron going into his second term, I think can't be understated. I think to me, you just have to look at how the far right has performed under her and uh, under the far, her father and now her to show you the growth of Marine Le Pen over the last couple of years. So in 2002, 17.8% in the second round. That was under her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen. In 2012, 17.9% in the first round. And in both 2017, 2022, she made the second round and got 33.9% and 41% this time round. So it's clear and consistent growth throughout the time that she's been in politics. And I think that cannot be underestimated. And we compare that to look at the map of France, for example, she's clearly made gains in central France, she's made gains in the post-industrial northeast, for example, and conservative southeast France. So if you compare her performance this time around to five years ago, she won zero out of the regions last time around. This time around, she won one, two regions, one in the north and one in the southeast, so two very different parts of France. Last time around 2017, in terms of departments, she's won only two. This time around, she's won more than 10 departments in France. And in overseas territories, this is what I find absolutely fascinating. She won five overseas territories in Guadeloupe, Martinique, uh, Guadeloupe, and La Réunion, all different parts of the world, and also kind of puts a dent in this Macron to try to create a global France, and yet they voted for the far-right candidate. I just think that's clear evidence that she's expanded beyond her base of immigration. She did that by focusing 
on the cost of living and economic issues and, in, and, and successfully managed as a politician to pivot people's quite vulnerable, her real vulnerabilities in the sense of her closeness to Vladimir Putin for many years into one in which of an ordinary French voter and trying to take advantage of a perceived arrogance of Emmanuel Macron mm. don't you, of over the last mm. five years. That said, Emmanuel Macron went into this election profoundly unpopular. Not not at the same levels of Francois Hollande in, in 2017, but still his approval ratings were extremely low. So for Marine Le Pen to go into this election against an unpopular incumbent French president and still come off with the third largest margin in a second round in French history, I think does show that Marine Le Pen, although she has had an influence on French politics and has expanded her performance from 2017, was still seems to be a long shot away from from the French presidency, given the context of the popularity of the incumbent. And yes, we won't have Emmanuel Macron as an incumbent next time around, but we might have someone else. We might have the revival of the Republican Party with a bigger political infrastructure. You might, in a bizarre world, have the revival of the Socialist Party. You never know. But Marine Le Pen will be facing a different opponent and someone without the political scar tissue of Emmanuel Macron's first term as well. So I just wonder, do you think that she has a ceiling of support in France or do you think there is still room to grow and that this trajectory she's been on in the last three electoral cycles now is going to go even further towards the presidency in five years time, if indeed she is a major player then as well? I think an interesting thought experiment, Sam, is that if you recall in the first round, Jean-Luc Mélenchon came within one or two percentage points of beating Marine Le Pen into the second round. And you just think, given how left-wing, the divided the left-wing field was here, the socialists, the greens, the communists, for example, I mean, if the greens dropped out, their voters were most likely could have gone to Mélenchon and be talking about totally different conversation altogether. So interested to hear your thoughts on that in a little bit. I think on the topic of Marine Le Pen, I think in terms of ceiling, I've, it's clear to me that if you look at the results, that the ceiling that she has has been getting higher and higher and higher. But nonetheless, I think she does face a big ceiling in terms of getting over the 50% plus one. And that is in older voters who might not necessarily believe this new Marine Le Pen. I might remember her father because obviously they share the same last name, for example, and she's been in the political scene for many a decade. So she is her awareness rating amount of populations is incredibly high heading to the next election. And it is notable that she lost the, uh, based on polling by Ipsos, the over 71 vote by Macron won 71% of those. And I suspect a lot of what was dri driving that vote was not only Ukraine, and they remembered that Marine Le Pen was a long-time ally of Vladimir Putin. And secondly, as well, I think the Le Pen image and her father, the firebrand politics of her father, plays very badly mm. with this group. What do you think? I found, Sam? yeah, I, I found some a poll, an Ipsos poll, which was conducted just after the first round, where it broke down by age what the most important issue was for voters in this election, and. Yes, as you said, 70%, over 70% of over 65s voted for Emmanuel Macron compared to 53% of people between the ages of 25 and 49 voting for Macron. So it was much tighter there. But you see it in the issues because 
3% of over 70s said that unemployment was their main issue compared to 10% of people between the age of 35 and 49. 13% of over 70s said their main issue was social inequality compared to 31% of people aged 18 to 24. And then the one I find the most startling is 9% of people aged 18 to 24 said the war on Ukraine was the main issue compared to 23% of over 65s. And just to put a final nail in the coffin, the environment. 49% of 18 to 24 said the environment was their main issue. 20% of over 65 said that. So these age groups have completely different priorities in this election and therefore it's no surprise to me that the margins of the two candidates are so starkly different in age groups and the question you have to ask really is does this bode well for the future of the center of french politics because if you have this entire chunk of the middle of the french population who are pretty much 50 50 on the choice between macron and le pen if that age group moves up the scale and those percentages don't really change we have a much tighter election on our hands in five years' time than this time around. Obviously, priorities change and age groups don't move uniformly like that in elections. But clearly, these two generations of France have very different priorities and have very different political leanings to the other. That being said, though, I think age is generally in the Western world a bigger political cleavage than we ever have seen before. We have the, the way in which pensioners, their priorities are very different from what the younger generation want. And the challenge is, of course, is that for any centre-left parties that whose message appeals to younger voters is that younger people do not vote. We know this over and over again. But older people do very much when there is no compulsory voting. And so therefore, the issues that um, that older voters care about often get amplified and the parties are particularly attuned to what older voters think. And so therefore, for Macron's case, he was lucky because older voters preferred him by a country mile. And that, I suspect, was what helped him to a much better than expected performance in the end. So let's talk about Emmanuel Macron, the victor of this election. And do you think that this election was a victory for Emmanuel Macron on merit, or do you think it was simply for not being Marine Le Pen? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. And I think a lot of it, there are some worrying signs for Emmanuel Macron. I think two reasons. Firstly, it's in turnout. This was the lowest second round turnout since 1969. And I think a lot of it was antipied amongst young voters, despite Macron only being 44 years of age when he won his second term. I think a lot of Melanchon voters reluctantly voted for Macron because uh, they did not want to vote for Marine Le Pen and saw it as the utmost duty to prevent the far right from getting in. And I wonder, just stopping the far right, how much motivated that could be in future elections to come. So that's the first, I think, big warning sign to come. And the secondly, I think Marine Le Pen has still a lot more to be made, particularly amongst the economic credibility, amongst that crucial segment of the population. And I think unless that she's able to get over that and get over people's fears for electing a far-right candidate in general, I think that will always be a ceiling for her. So I have to admit that I'm tending more on the favour that this is going, this was more of a vote against Le Pen rather than pro-Macron. Although Macron did acknowledge some of the political reality and did try to adjust from that as what we saw over the last two weeks. Yeah, I, I think I broadly agree with you there. And I think 
to illustrate just how in in 2017, I think there were actually more people who in the second round decided to spoil their ballots than in this time around because they saw that the race was a lot closer and in the end decided to stomach it and vote for Macron in the end because in 2017, um, blank and null ballots accounted for over 11% of the number of total ballots counted, whereas this time around in 2022, it accounted for just over 8 of the votes. So the number of blank and null votes did fall by 3% alongside the fact that turnout overall fell marginally as well. So it did seem like a lot more people who protested last time decided not to do the same thing again this time around. But but as you said, I, I still do get the sense that Emmanuel Macron was very fortunate in who his opponent was this time around because the endorsements of Macron came from right across the political spectrum, down from, up from Valérie Pécresse, the Republican candidate endorsing him, all the way down to Mélenchon, not explicitly endorsing him, but choosing actively not to endorse Marine Le Pen as well. So you had the entire polit- political spectrum on his side. And had he eventually gone on to face um, someone like Valérie Pécresse instead, I just wonder if his performance would have been anywhere near the performance he had this time around because there, in that world you had two what I call palatable candidates for the majority of the French population. Not someone who's a populist who has very divisive opinions but two reasonable candidates for president going up against each other. One is the incumbent with a terrible approval rating and one is a fresh face and this time around, you didn't have that. It was a rerun of 2017. It was a rerun of a contest between the centre, Marine Le Pen versus everyone else. And I just think in that context, yes, Macron might have been a very good candidate for president in this election. But I think a lot of his vote did come from people who just could not stand to see someone like Marine Le Pen in the Elysee Palace. I totally agree with your analysis there. And I think part of the fact is that she needs to do better in urban areas. I think she's shown quite a lot of strength. I just checked, she won 21 departments uh, rather than, and she won two last time around. So it's a huge increase, more than 10 was actually an understatement as well, showing she's really gained a foothold in rural France. And she now needs to make headways in not only the small towns that dotted throughout France, but in the medium sized towns. She's never going to win Paris, but she has to keep her margin of defeat down and she has to do better there. So I think. That is Marine Le Pen's challenge now. It, it, the cost of living focus did help, but I think there still has to be some more to go towards appealing to urban France in order to get rid of the far-right stigma that currently surrounds her. Let's talk about the key group that we was missing in the first round, which is the Mélenchon voters. Do you agree with my analysis, I said for them, that a lot of them probably did vote for Macron reluctantly or just did not bother to go for, vote at all? And which do you think was slightly bigger of those two groups? My expectation would be that the majority of those nearly just over three million blank and null ballots were people who chose to vote for Mélenchon in the first round would be my expectation. I mean, if you add up the people who didn't vote the between the first and second rounds, the people who left their ballot blank and the people who invalidated their ballot, it comes to about six million people. And in... It was unlikely that all of them are going to have voted Mélenchon, but my expectation would be that 
most of those people who actively chose to turn out and spoil their ballot were people who voted Mélenchon in the first round. But I do agree with your analysis that I think a majority of Mélenchon voters who chose to cast a vote went for Macron. Because if you add up from the first round, although it's not a like-for-like transfer, but I think it's the, the best we've got, is that if you add up the number of people who endorsed Macron from the first round, that accounts for around 45% of the vote. And Mélenchon got 22% of the vote. So if you say that maybe half of the Mélenchon voters chose to come out this time, it looks like pretty much all of them went to Emmanuel Macron and a very slim amount went to Marine Le Pen because Marine Le Pen's vote vote number did go up significantly, but a lot of the Zemmer voters would have gone there. A lot of the Dupont-Eignan voters would have gone there. Whereas Whereas if you look at the Macron vote... He got pretty much everybody else, and then most of Mélenchon, I think, makes the most mathematical sense to me. I don't know if you agree, Chern. Yeah, I think it makes the most mathematical sense. But like I said, the enthusiasm for Macron, I think, will be severely tested in a big electoral event that's due to come out in France in the next month or so, which is the French parliamentary elections. Because I saw a poll that um, 66% of French voters do not want Macron to actually win the parliamentary elections, which means we're back in this cohabitation kind of weird period. We're having an en marche president and potentially a prime minister of a different party. It was very telling to me that Jean-Luc Mélenchon came out on the night of the second round and openly said he was trying to be prime minister of France. He knew that most of his voters would vote for Macron. He knew the leverage he's going to have, and he's trying to exploit that over the next month or so. Nonetheless, though, the, for, particularly for the left, though, the, key, the problem and the key that they need to do over the next month in the parliamentary elections is they need to coordinate together because to get to the second round in, of these French parliamentary elections and to win constituencies, they're going to need 15% of the eligible vote. And given how divided the left field was, and that's why I thought this fun thought experiment, if one of the left-wing candidates dropped out and endorsed Manager on the first round, how that would change the conversation, I can see exactly that same scenario appearing in the parliamentary elections. Do you agree, Sosam? Oh, absolutely. And I think this is even more important for Marine Le Pen as well, because the statistics you were citing earlier of winning 21 departments in France In the presidential election, in order to win, you need a majority across the whole of France. To win a significant number of seats in the Legislative Assembly, you need to win majorities in constituencies. And I think whilst Marine Le Pen is is not capable as a movement of winning a majority nationally, her party is clearly capable of winning a majority on a more regional and local level. And she didn't get many seats at all in 2017. Um, and she, and in the same election, in the presidential election, she didn't win a single region. This time around, she won three regions. She won 21 departments and all five territories. And I think that is ingredients that make for fruitful ground in the Legislative Assembly. But as you indicated there, I think Mélenchon is going to be a major player in this Legislative Assembly elections as well. Because I think there are a lot of Mélenchon voters who will feel like we lent you our vote to get Emmanuel Macron to the presidency above Marine Le Pen. And in return, why not you then swing back to us and make the Legislative Assembly more left-leaning than, than the presidency? And then we'll have a progressive government on the whole to try and combat Marine Le Pen. Because I think a lot of Mélenchon voters will genuinely believe that in order to stop Le Pen in some departments of France, 
Mélenchon's party is the way to go rather than Macron's, which is tainted by his first term and also the image of the party being a, well, not Le Pen rather than enthusiastic, whereas the Mélenchon voters are very enthusiastic for their candidate and very enthusiastic for their party. Don't forget, the first time Macron saw the yellow jacket protest in general, which is a huge social protest against some of the economic ills of that very much the younger voters and younger voters were frustrated with the economic situation of that country. I think the key, I agree with all in Nassim, but I come back to the point. The left, which has historically been not particularly very close to each other, need to coordinate to get into that second round. And if they cannot do that, then that's a big shooting themselves in the foot. I think that's a key challenge for the left. Don't you agree? It is, it is. And we'll have to see what happens because just one more poll to talk about, which was conducted this week. It asked the question, do you want the following figures to have more influence in French politics? The first option was Mélenchon, of which 40% of those responding said yes, which notably is significantly higher than his first round percentage. Le Pen, 37%, yes. And then Yaddo, 25% yes. So both Yaddo and Mélenchon have respectable showings in this poll. And as you said, if both of those want to have equal future involvement in French politics, they're probably going to shoot both of each other in the foot in the process because, because of the way this electoral system works. Because if you can't get to the second round, you're not a factor in the election at all. And if you split the vote, the chance of getting into the second round and and being and being able to contest for the seat is significantly lower and that's actually what the problem was for Marine Le Pen in 2017 coming off the back of the presidential election was the front national just did not have the voter pool to get into to get one into second rounds or two once they were there to produce local majorities as well and, but, and that's ignoring the fact that Emmanuel Macron between now and in June can do something to signal that he's aware of left-wing voters and their concerns. And to me, that is in the choice of who is going to be the next prime minister of France over this next one month or so. Jean uh, Cartex, the current prime minister, will present his resignation and saying that the government will need, quote, new impetus in particular. Who do you think, given this environment, that, France, that Macron will choose as his next prime minister? I kind of agree with the name that's being thrown about the most in this conversation, which is Elizabeth Bourne, who is the current Minister for Work, mainly because throughout his first term, Macron did signal that he was very keen to appoint a woman as Prime Minister, which is something he didn't do within his first term. And Elizabeth Bourne is a left-leaning technocrat with environmental affairs experience. I think she ticks the box of progressive she ticks the box of the green movement as well and i think if he wants to if he does want to appoint a female into this role i think elizabeth bourne would be a nice place to turn to to show left appeal and also achieve that goal of his but there are other names in this conversation people like uh, bruno le maire the current finance minister but i do think elizabeth bourne ticks the most boxes for me but when all of these names were put to the government, the government were very coy on it and saying that, no, you're not on the right track at all. And 2017, if it proves anything, is that Macron can pick his um, prime minister from completely outside of the box. So potentially that will happen again. But I think 
if you're looking for established names with quite proven credentials that make a very clear statement of what you want your government to be portrayed as, then I think Elizabeth Bourne would be a good a good choice. What do you think, Chern? Yeah, I mean, to me, I see it as a head versus heart scenario. The head choice and the logical choice being Elizabeth Bourne. She was an environment minister. She was transport minister and, and as you said, labor minister in Kearney. So she's had a wealth of government experience and can appeal to the left very much. Nonetheless, though, I think his heart is saying, uh, is pointing to another woman who I know he's close with because he nominated her for one of the biggest jobs in the European Union. I wonder if Christine Lagarde could be in this conversation as well. I've seen some reports. She's refused to say no to it, but I think that could be very interesting as well. But I just think given the need to- Do you think she would accept the position? She don't think she's been in government before. She was a finance minister under Francois Fillon, under the centre-right. He has clearly picked prime ministers of the centre-right. I think his heart's with Christine Lagarde, but I think the Is necessity of winning the next <laughs> It could be a demotion. Who knows? But we've seen stranger things in politics This is recently. true. This is true. Um, and you say he's picked candidates out of left field. I feel the yeah. next prime minister will be a woman. But I therefore pick the choice between his heart, which is Christine Lagarde. He's picked centre-right prime ministers. He probably does belong a lot of the pro-business element to it. And nonetheless, but I think the necessity of winning a stable legislative majority means you probably will go for Elizabeth Bourne. So quite a fascinating choice indeed, isn't it, Sam, to look ahead to? Oh, absolutely. And and I think this, this French presidential election has been very engaging for many reasons because there were so many false starts. Who'd have thought even a couple of months ago that Le Pen would get close to Macron in the first round as well? But I think the legislative elections are even more interesting because players, big players come back onto the scene and the threshold for winning seats is much lower than the threshold of winning the presidency. And I think this legislature could either be yet another whitewash for on Marsh, but it could also be a complete um, mess, to be honest, of big blocks of the far left, of the far right, and of on Marsh. And I think the margins between those two results are really fine. And it will be fascinating to see which way some of these seats go in June. Well, I'm really excited for the parliamentary election. I don't use, don't know about you, Sam. And we don't, just have a wee bit more time to wait. So it seems like, although the hard bit for Emmanuel Macron, the, the easy bit, it very much seems for Emmanuel Macron, is over, which is winning a second term. There's a lot more challenges lie ahead, isn't it? There is. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we'll be reviewing the results of Northern Ireland's Assembly election and also taking a wide sweep view of other local election results taking place next Thursday in the UK. And as always, we'll be bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.